This episode is sponsored by the Why Do We Say That podcast. How many times have we stopped this episode to figure out the etymology of some old-timey word or phrase? <sighs> if I had a dime for every time. Why Do We Say That is the podcast for anyone who's ever asked. Well, why do we say that? It's a father and son podcast with your hosts Scott and Liam Kelly diving deep into etymology. I loved the episode on historical insults titled, Your Mother Wears Army Boots. How dare you disparage my mother, you blasted snollygoster. You'll learn... (laughs) (laughs) It's a word. It's a fun word. You'll learn about these idioms and more on why do we say that. And you can even submit your own suggestions for words and phrases you want to know more about. Check out Why Do We Say That wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are back this week with more Spooky Ween historical crime. Spooky Ween! It's gonna get kind of hellish. (laughs) So, if you want more content, then you can head on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey where you can find all of our bonus episodes, over a hundred of them. Some of them spooky ween. Yes, the entire month our Patreon bonus episodes have been spooky ween. And uh, what did I tell you about today, Amber? Um, It was like 20 minutes ago. I, 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 don't, I don't remember. What did I tell you about? It's really, it's, they're very memorable, as you can tell. Amber's got a lot on her plate these days. <laughs> oh, oh, what, what was the tiny about? I wasn't understanding the question. <laughs> we learned about some haunted British pubs. <laughs> yes, we did. As I said, as my actual episode notes were titled, everything has led to this. It was meant to be, it had to be, and so it be. So it was fascinating. There was a little ghost girl. There was a ghost woman who ended up in a well. (laughs) There was a ghost pirate. There were multiple ghost landlords of pubs. Yes. (laughs) All named John. Lots of ghosty Johns. Lots of lots of ghosty Johns. So yes, we have that, and it's $5 a month. You get five bonus episodes every month, and they are so much fun. They really, really are. I was just so excited about the Haunted British Pubs. This is all I could think of all day. It's like, I can't wait for Amber to get here. I'm going to tell her about some Haunted British Pubs. (laughs) So we are going to talk this week on our regular episode for all of our lovely listeners Helen Duncan, also known as Hellish Nell. Hellish Nell. Now, if you want more witchcraft history in the UK, specifically regarding the Witchcraft Act that we're going to talk about a little bit here, I do go into that at the beginning of the Mary Bateman episode, which was, I believe, our first Spooky Ween episode this month. So we're bookending Spooky Ween with witches, as is appropriate. Mm-hmm. So go listen to that if you haven't already, uh, else it shall not do. Else it shall not do. (laughs) Yes. 
So Helen Duncan was born Victoria Helen McFarlane in 1897. Her father was either a cabinet maker or a slater, maybe both. And a slater is exactly what it sounds like. It's a person who puts slate on buildings. So according to her family, she had another name. It was Victoria Helen McRae McFarlane, born November 25th. They did list her father's occupation as a master slater. Master Slater. Which is super fun. (laughs) What do you do? I'm a Master Slater. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me too. She was the fourth eldest daughter. One of eight is uh, according to her family. And her mother's name was Isabella Rattray, which, uh, boy, does that name have me in the first half. (laughs) Yeah. And the family hailed from Calendar, Scotland. I did try to see if the pronunciation from, for that was different than, you know, the thing you put up on the wall to tell you the dates. And I couldn't find anything but, like, machine pronunciations, you know, robotic calendar. Yeah. And so... It's, well, it's spelled similar to uh, Marie Calendar of the uh, pot pies. Yes, so. yes. Marie Calendar of the uh, main pot pies. So Helen said that even as a kid, she had special powers clairvoyancy, and the ability to see the dead. And now it's uncertain whether that aspect of her nature or her personality snagged her the cute little nickname Hellish Nell because she was said to have an argumentative or, as uh, one Scottish article put it, bolshy nature. So I do actually have some stories, again, this is from her family, about her youth. So I I found a really, really neat website. It was HelenDuncan.org, and it seemed like a lot of members of her family were added to this. So as a child, Helen was described as a bonnie lass, but soon began to (laughs) exhibit some psychic abilities. So it goes on to, to tell about at school, teacher wrote some questions on a blackboard, as you do. And then Helen wrote the numbers of the questions down, but didn't know the answers. So she prayed for help, and the answers appeared on her slate. My, 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 my. The teacher saw that the answers were not in her writing and accused her of cheating. She denied that and could not explain where the answers came from then. There was another instance where Helen had the number... 1066 that kept playing in her head, 1066, couldn't get it out of her head. And then later on during history class, the teacher was talking about the Battle of Hastings and wrote 1066 on the blackboard. As the teacher did that, he suffered a heart attack. (gasps) Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. So uh, apparently Helen's parents, who... did think that maybe she had a, a gift, but were also like, okay, whatever, she's gonna grow out of it. It'll be, it'll be fine. But instead, it, they said that it actually seemed that her ability grew stronger mm-hmm. as she got older, instead of just being a stage. So did not grow out of it. No, I have another fascinating tidbit for you. Ooh, give it to me. So Helen's parents took her to the doctor to see if there was something wrong with her because of these supposed things that she kept saying were happening. And it says, to her mother's embarrassment, while at the doctor, Helen warned the doctor 
not to go out that night. Oh. The doctor did, and then he skidded off the road in a snowstorm and passed away. And actually, because of this, a local minister accused her of consorting with the devil. Oh, well, of course. Naturally. Yes. That might have been maybe why she moved to Dundee. (laughs) That was. That was actually just before she moved to Dundee. There you go. She moved to Dundee in her teens and found work in the jute mills. Dundee is actually home to the world's first jute mill. And actually, Dundee has three big industries, so it's sometimes called the city of jute, jam, and journalism. Fascinating little tidbit there. When the the jute industry was at its peak, there were 62 jute mills in Dundee with 50,000 residents employed in the industry. Wow. It was big. She married Henry Duncan in 1920, and he was disabled from injuries he'd sustained in World War I. Interesting bit about that. The family says that he was also having visions of her and she was having visions of him before they ever met. And the first words they said to each other was, so we meet at last. Oh, my gosh. All right, I'm not super this lady's biggest fan, but that is so damn sweet. I can't even deal with it. It is, but again, this this is coming from family and it's almost like folklore at this point has been passed down to several generations. Yeah, yeah. Family stories can get exaggerated sometimes is because these are people in our history. And so of course we want them to have this, you know, romantic background and of course especially with Helen given the events that happened later in her life and how she was cast by people in say like the media and in public, they would want to look at her in a rosier, sweeter light and want to put those facts out there to sort of counteract some of the public narrative. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense, but it's, it, that's, I hate that I love that. <laughs> I hate that I love that. I hate that I love it. She went to work at the Dundee Royal Infirmary. They had six kids, and for a while they ended up in Kirkhill Road in Edinburgh. So they actually had eight. Oh, yes, she had two. That died as babies. Yes, that is correct, yes. You're you're more thorough than me this week. <laughs> you're kicking my ass, and I love it. It's it's all from the family, though. This is where I got it because I even got the names, and I didn't see the names of those children in any other article. They were barely mentioned at all. Yeah, and I did see a couple articles that said mother of eight, and that's why I kind of looked into that a little bit. So it was Bella, Nan, Lillian, Henry, Peter, and Gina, and then two that died in infancy. Those are all good names. Yeah, not bad. Good quality classic names. And Bella must have been named after her mother, Isabella. I think so. Glad they didn't name the child Rat Tray. Yeah. <laughs> this is Rat Tray. Yeah. These are my children, Nan, Henry, and Rat Tray. <laughs> she established herself as a medium in the mid-1920s with some help from uh, her husband, Henry. Now, she had a few signature moves that she used at her seances, and, and he would help her out with these. So to start with, she had some spirit guides. There is Albert Stewart. And most uh, sources say that he was a Scotsman who had died after moving to Australia and had possibly been mutilated in Singapore. I believe he was at the very least missing a hand. And he tended to be kind of sarcastic. He had a bit of a hard edge to him. And he's called the control, which it seems like that means he takes over when Duncan is in a trance. Then there's Peggy, 
an energetic little girl who just loved to perform. She loved the spotlight. She was always singing and dancing and climbing all over the room like a little monkey. And both of them were said to have individual voices that differed entirely from Duncan's. Then there was the ectoplasm. Yeah. So this is, in some articles, it was called uh, psychoplasm. But of course, we're going with the classic ectoplasm. It would, uh, uh, during seances, erupt from her mouth and her nose and even sometimes her ears. It was described as a slimy substance or sometimes a cloud-like substance. So descriptions differed. I also got white, smoky, mucus substance. Ew. Also sometimes called a living cobweb. I'm just very, very aware of my phlegm and I don't like it. I do want to throw in a quick tidbit, though, of, of why Helen's husband encouraged this. Okay. Supposedly, the story goes, Henry was working as a cabinet maker, and at some point, he had rheumatic fever that had badly damaged a valve in his heart. Now, at the time, Helen was trying to supplement the household income by washing bed sheets and shirts for one penny an item. And she also took a job in a bleach mill. So she was at work, and she had a premonition that Henry was in trouble. So she rushed to his workshop to find that he had suffered a heart attack. Oh. And so she managed to get the help he needed to save his life. And it was obvious that he could not, again, work full time. It was putting too much stress on his body. Mm -hmm. So after this, he's like, maybe you do have a gift that we could use to make some money. Aha. So it was kind of for both of them. It wasn't just for her because she had this gift. It was also because he could no longer work full time to support all this this giant family that they had, which I guess at the time was just an average size family. But for us now, it's frightening. But yeah, so that was the start of it is, is he had a heart attack, but she somehow knew that he was in trouble, saved his life. And then they're like, all right, well, we're definitely going to need more money now. But also, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so kind of both born out of need and necessity, and as, as well as the gift popping up at just the right time when they needed money. <laughs> yes, but also to share it with everybody, back to the subject of the ectoplasm, my show notes this week are titled, Let's Puke Up Some Spirits, <laughs> because I could not get over that mental image. It's, it's a tough one to get over. Mine are entitled Fever Dreams, and that's related to some, some articles I'm going to read from later that I specifically pasted the actual articles into my notes instead of typing them up because I wanted proof that I didn't hallucinate them. That's how weird it's going to get. Yeah, there are definitely some weird pictures that are going to go for this. So oh, check yeah. out our social media. It is bound to be interesting. It's going to get, it's going to be bonkers over there. Let me tell you. So the ectoplasm that she would uh, emit would transform into spirits taking the physical form. And then they would talk to and touch their grieving loved ones. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I was just regurgitated from this woman's mouth. Hi, Sally. I've missed you so. How are the children? <laughs> in my description of this, in, in parentheses, I have gross, barf, ew. <laughs> like, it's just written all through my notes. <laughs> so one man, when investigating her to determine her validity as a medium, said that the ectoplasm, quote, came from Mrs. Duncan's mouth in the form of a snake five feet long, It had terrific force and eventually twined itself around his neck 
and almost lifted him from his chair. There were actually some really cool stories that came out of these seances. Seances. Mm-hmm. It, I, the ectoplasm makes me want to throw up. I can't help it. These puke parties? These puke parties. Yes. <laughs> so I, ha- I have a story from a man named Vincent Woodcock. He had brought his sister-in-law for one of these shows. And it, it is said that that hour changed their lives. So, oh, the ectoplasm, though. Oh, God. Anyway, so he had said that he went to one of these and uh, she began the ectoplasm thing. And then his dead wife materialized from this ectoplasm and asked both Vincent and his sister-in-law to stand. So, I mean, they do. And the spirit removed her wedding ring and placed it on her sister's finger and says, it is my wish that this takes place for the sake of my little girl. A year later, the couple were married and returned for another seance, during which the same spirit appeared again to give her blessings to the happy couple. But ew! She also said how pleased she was for the sake of her little girl. And I think it's important to note that when she did the ring thing, he said she clasped our hands together and kissed them. So there, there's so much physical contact going on here. There is. And, and that's what's impressive to me because then there's other people that said that the ectoplasm was a regurgitation made of like cheesecloth and paper, egg white and toilet paper. Mm-hmm. So if it's that, but they're touching people, you would think that you'd have that shit all over you. Yeah, you would think, but it seems like it's somehow also connected or becomes connected to these figures that when pictures are taken with a flash, because this is all done very much in the dark, appear to be maybe a painted paper mache head yeah. on top of a coat hanger that's draped in a sheet. Yeah, that's really <laughs> what the pictures look like. Yeah, and then sometimes the ectoplasm, when it came out of her mouth, would even have faces on it. Like a picture of a woman's profile, and we'll get into that. Yeah, literally in my notes. Holy shit, why are you sticking that in your mouth? Yes, ew. So yes, there were uh, investigations, because she did become quite popular and was taking her show on the road. And so that sort of invited some scrutiny. And the scrutiny came from different quarters over time. First, there was Harvey Metcalf, a photographer, In 1928, he came to one of her seances, and he's the one who took those flash photos. This kind of blew up her spot in theory. You can see in the photos, the it's very clear that these are the paper mache heads on top of a a hanger. Yeah, they're not very convincing at all. No, really, not a lot of artistic skill here. And uh, you could see the pictures on the ectoplasm looked rather like maybe they were cut from a magazine. But this didn't really put a dent in her business. So then the London Spiritualist Alliance conducted an investigation in 1931. Now, they were specifically looking at the ectoplasm. And uh, so they had her take a pill, methylene blue, that is supposed to show us whether or not this is something that she's swallowed before and is regurgitating or whether it's something ghostly and otherworldly. Because if it's ghostly and otherworldly... The methylene blue isn't really going to... The pill won't do anything. Yeah. Well, what do you know? There's no ectoplasm this time. (laughs) 
Oh. Little, little convenient. And then came Harry Price's investigation. He was a famous sort of Mythbuster of mediums in a way. He was a he was a medium mythbuster medium because he <laughs> That's not confusing at all. I know. He was a medium level because he, he wasn't that he totally disbelieved that any contact with the spirit world or the afterlife or whatever was possible. He deemed some mediums as legit and also myth-busted and debunked other ones. So a quote from Price is that he thought all mediums were guilty of fraud until proven genuine. And his job was, he's going to prove them genuine if they are, and he would prove some of them genuine in his mind. In his mind. Price is a giant bag of ectoplasm. He is. Somebody needs to puke him up. So, see, someone snagged some of the ectoplasm and gave it to Harry Price, He examined it and confirmed that it was cheesecloth and paper that had been swallowed and then regurgitated. There was also a ghostly hand that had supposedly materialized, and he determined that it was, in fact, a rubber glove. What do you know? And he wanted to set up a time when she would do a seance and he would x-ray her. She agreed but then it just went to shit when she was going to be x-rayed because this was all going to happen in his own sort of office laboratory deal. So here's his description of the incident. It is a shit show, and I'm loving it. She jumped up and dealt her husband a smashing blow on the face, which sent him reeling. She then made a lunge at Dr. William Brown, who fortunately avoided the blow. Suddenly, without the slightest warning, she jumped up, pushed Mrs. Goldney aside, unfastened the door, and dashed into the street, where she had another attack of alleged hysterics and commenced tearing her seance garment to pieces. Her husband dashed after her, followed by the other sitters. She was found clutching the railings, screaming, and Mr. Duncan was trying to pacify her. So crowds gathered, the police were called, but uh, Price and everybody else managed to pacify everyone's concern and get her back into the lab, at which point she insisted that she was ready to be x-rayed. She'd had her freak out and she was ready. And they pretty much had an idea of what had happened. She'd had her cheesecloth ingested. And also the seance garment, he kind of designed it so that she was kind of trapped. It was like, I think satin, if I remember correctly. And it almost looks like she's in a giant balloon, but it, it traps her hands so she can't like reach up and maybe pull something out of her mouth. And so notice that part of her freakout was tearing the seance garment to pieces. So there you have that. Well, do you, did you hear the reason, though, why he wanted to do the x-ray? I mean, kind of. Go ahead. So at one point, he was convinced that she had a, a second stomach. Oh. And that's where she was hiding this stuff. So she would put this stuff in her second stomach. Like a, a cow, I think. Cows like, have multiple stomachs. Yeah. Um. And so she would, like, hide the stuff in her second stomach, which is why it wasn't blue, because she put the pill in her first stomach and then pulled the cheesecloth out of her second stomach. This was the theory. And I'm like, yo. Yeah. Wow. Harry, we, we got to talk about your understanding of anatomy and the human body. Uh, I mean, if, if, if true, this woman has amazing control over her digestive system. Right? I would kill for that. I have the second stomach that goes nowhere. I hide things in it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, so yeah, their idea was that she had needed to cause a diversion so they wouldn't realize when she had puked it up and given it to her husband. 
So they say, all right, Mr. Duncan, let's see what's in your pockets. And he said, nope. He refused. I think it's pretty clear that they were correct about their ideas that she had just done all this so that they would be looking the other way. Perhaps, perhaps. But at the same time, if I was accompanying somebody to a doctor's appointment and they're like, let me check your pockets. I'm like, fuck you. You're not, that's not your business. I mean, it's not technically a doctor's appointment. It's an investigation. I mean, not an official one. But yeah, it's in, not official. And you don't need to see what's in my pockets. You don't know what I have. But she's, she's come into contact with him since tearing out her seance garment. I think it definitely was... I think they're spot on. Maybe. But apparently they were also having women examine her nude before every show to confirm that she wasn't hiding anything in her gown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just bizarre, the stuff that she agreed to for an unofficial investigation. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess she felt she had to prove herself. They did try another seance with uh, Harry Price, and everybody stood ready to snip off a piece of the ectoplasm as soon as it came out. And they they got permission from Albert, the spirit guide, to do so. And this time they did. And it was paper and egg white in a, in a, like, a tube that was, I guess, flattened or crushed somehow. I'm kind of picturing, like, a, maybe a toilet paper tube or something smaller, narrower. It's paper and egg white still. Yeah. I think she maybe just tried a tube instead of cheesecloth and thought maybe, you know, she could hide it better. I'm not sure. And this was also about the time that they were pretty certain that the faces on the ectoplasm were just pictures cut from magazines. So Harry Price was pissed off and feeling pretty derogatory. He said, Could anything be more infantile than a group of grown-up men wasting time, money, and energy on the antics of a fat female crook? Ow. You know, okay. Why do you gotta bring that into it, man? Exactly. That's exactly my point. Because I'm not her biggest fan, but... That's because of the very last word, the possibility that she's a crook who's taking advantage of grieving families. And he's including the, in his words, fact that she's fat and the fact that she's a woman. So he, he's, he's piling all these things up there when that's not the crux of the matter at all. That's just being derogatory for the sake of being a dick. And, so. and he did a good job of being a dick. Yes, he did. Yes. Despite all this, again, people are still attending her seances in droves. She's quite popular. In 1933, during a seance, there's a shape of a spirit coming out from within her skirt. Someone in the audience snatches it and finds that it's not a spirit. It's a stockinette undervest. And that might be the Britishest thing I've ever said. It's it's an undershirt, essentially. And uh, people had paid 10 shillings a piece, which, okay, so, Brits, we got to (laughs) talk. This whole shilling thing that you guys used to do, confusing as hell when you're trying to figure out currency from back then. I'm not, I I had a whole time. All right, so any currency numbers I give you that, you know, today's valuations for, Take with an entire salt mine's worth of salt because A, I'm not that great at math to begin with. And then B, when you add the confusion of, of shillings and sixpence and all this stuff, it just gets more confusing. So, you know, you guys can harp on us for not using the metric system all you want, but you did shillings. So that's what I have to say. I love Man. you, Brits. <laughs> you name pubs cool things. So uh, I think it's about $110 today. Yeah, a shilling is like 12 cents as far as I can tell. 
So the math gets super weird, and I don't like it. She is, after this, arrested on a charge of fraud and put on trial. Uh, One man testifies in her defense that he had seen a lot of amazing shit at the 18 of her seances he had attended, and that's out of the 4,000 total seances he had gone to. Well, and so... How much money does this dude have? That person was Mr. Ernest W. Oten. He was president of the International Spiritualist Federation and the editor of the leading spiritualist journal, Two Worlds. So he probably got in free. Probably. It was part of his job. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he, he did come to her defense and, um, quote, I arranged most of the sittings and laid down conditions which made fraud utterly impossible without detection. The spirits were intelligences separate and distant from Mrs. Duncan and were decidedly different in form. He did say that he had seen Albert and had shaken Peggy's hand, her little, her spirit guides. Mm -hmm. Her counsel explains the whole thing with the undervest slash undershirt thusly. By hypnotic suggestion, a sitter could make the medium take off her skirt, remove the garment, and dress again. Which somehow nobody is seeing this happen. One would one would think you would notice, but some of the time she spent in a cabinet. So I, it's it's a very strange explanation. They're they're really really relying on some serious suspension of disbelief from the jury, and they don't get it. Yeah, and I also I saw somebody else, and I don't know if it was said in trial or just somebody speculating later on that it could have been in that sitter's bag that they just produced it and said that it had come from under her dress. So they're saying it's a setup. It's a setup. It's a setup. She is found guilty and is fined ten pounds. Then World War II started up and the seance business boomed because... So did the soldiers. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, Lord. In light of the uh, story I'm about to tell about the HMS Barham, (laughs) that's... uh, uh, Yeah. Um, And I I couldn't really find any place to fit this, so I'm just going to mention that sometimes there were special guests at the seance. The only... One that I could find specific reference to was Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes. So, in November 1941, she has a seance in which she summons Sid, a deceased sailor who had died by drowning when the HMS Barham sank. Now, we're going to talk about the HMS Barham a little bit. It was a Queen Elizabeth-class battleship used frequently as a flagship, and it was sank by the German sub U-331 on November 24th, 1941. Actually, it was tea time on the ship, and U-331 shot all four bow torpedoes from 375 meters. Three of the four torpedoes hit, And the HMS Barham capsized to port, tipped over onto her side, essentially. She's just laying there for a minute, and from a distance, it looks really calm. I mean, you know it's got to be chaotic, but if you're far enough away, she's just very slowly tipping and sinking. And there's a faint column of smoke rising up as she continues to list and sink. And then there's a huge explosion. Yes, and there's a really cool picture of that huge explosion. There's video. There's actually 
video. Yeah, I think I saw a still from the video of, of just like the height of the explosion. It is. I don't like it. Uh, it's pretty horrifying because it's war and war is horrifying. But if you look closely, you can see men sliding down the side of her and jumping off and into the water right before the explosion. And this is from an American journalist report. All along her starboard side, hundreds of men began leaping into the calm blue water that contrasted with the ruddy rays of the setting sun. Soon I could see hundreds of heads bobbing above the surface. Some sailors managed to throw rubber floats down from the ship, upon which clamored dozens of men soon after they hit the water. And all I can think of is those men who are throwing floats down, trying to save their brothers-in-arms' lives, and then a lot of them probably perished in the explosion. 862 crewmen. Yep. About two-thirds of the uh, crewmen on the ship. And this is a big deal. This is the first British battleship that is sank at sea by a German U-boat in World War II. And it would be the only one for the entirety of the war. The British government and the Admiralty, they're looking at this like, oh shit, this is going to be a huge hit to morale. People are going to think they're going to lose their heads. They're going to think we're losing. So in the final inquiry findings, the torpedo hit caused a fire in the smaller outboard gun magazines. I think gun magazines. It just says magazines. Yeah. I'm just assuming it's not the kind you find at the doctor's office that are not three years likely. old. Yeah. And then the fire spread to the bigger main magazines, which caused the giant explosion. I did look at the casualty list. There were five Sydneys. So anyone could have been the Sydney that she talked to. One little problem. So she gets word from Sid at a seance that the HMS Barham is sank in November of 1941. Uh, the government hadn't announced it yet, not publicly. They had notified the families of the sailors and officers who had died, and they included a plea for secrecy in this notification. Most essential that information of the event which led to the loss of your husband's life should not find its way to the enemy until such time as it is announced officially. And one source even says the Navy went to the lengths of printing and mailing holiday cards for the entire crew of the HMS Barham, including those who had died, in order to try to hide the fact that they were no longer among the living. There was mention of a single newspaper report. I was never able to find it anywhere, but it kind of like snuck through and made it into one little newspaper report. But the Board of Admiralty was censoring all news that it could. They didn't want the Germans to know. And in addition to their own people, they didn't want the Germans to know because the Germans in, in the U-boat, they escaped before they could even be certain that they'd been successful. You know, they're in a submarine. It's, it's kind of hard to look back yeah. <laughs> and see the explosion. They weren't even, then they hadn't even been aiming for the HMS Barham. They had been aiming for uh, another ship in, in the convoy. And that co ship managed to kind of zigzag away, and the torpedoes just happened to hit the HMS Barham. So they officially announced the sinking on January 27th, 1942. And sure enough, the German Oberleutnant Zur, which is the highest lieutenant, who had been on U-331, didn't know for sure that he'd succeeded until the Brits announced it. So he was probably like, oh, hey. We did get them. We did get them. I told you. Anyhow, so it does seem, though, like it was kind of local knowledge. Uh, she seemed to have centralized her business in Portsmouth at this point, 
which was the home of the Royal Navy. And if you think about the families of 862 sailors, even if one person slips and tells someone outside the family, this big news is going to start passing. Or maybe even just two moms talking about it over tea and it's overheard. It's really easy for this stuff to spread around. Yeah, there was no real hope of keeping an actual lid on this. The only way to keep a lid on it is to not tell anyone. Exactly, yes. So her pronouncement about the HMS Barham brought some attention, but they kind of let it go for a while until January of 1944, when she was holding a seance at the Master Temple Psychic Center in Portsmouth. This is a purported spiritualist church above a drugstore. And the seance series was arranged through her agent, Francis Brown, with the people who ran the psychic center, Ernest and Elizabeth Homer. Some officials attended. Now, they were possibly spurred on by fears of her spoiling the plans for D-Day, which they'd been planning since the previous year. I love it. The secret plans for Operation Overlord. Yes, Operation Overlord. That is a fantastic operation name. I love it. Since she was living in Portsmouth, if she heard even a whisper about the plans for the landing at Normandy and she told the seance crowd details that some ghostly officer had told her, then that could destroy the whole operation. In reality, though, they didn't actually believe that the spirits were talking, but that she maybe had a very real person who was giving her classified information. Exactly. And they... One of her granddaughters said that they didn't really need to worry about this. She would never have done such a thing. And in fact, would have just stopped doing what she was doing if they just asked. And this is from her granddaughter. If they'd spoken to her, she would have stopped giving seances until the war was over. Let's be honest. She had two sons in the Navy and one in the RAF and my father in the Army. So why would she turn around and put the country at risk? Yeah, exactly. I, I think she would have actually stopped, but I don't think she I don't think she realized she was hurting anybody by letting some of this stuff slip. Yeah, I don't think she she really considered the consequences very much. And honestly, I think one of her sources was probably one of her sons, because you have guys in the Navy that survived mm-hmm. the boating accident, probably told a bunch of other people, got word got back to one of her sons. Her son probably was like, oh, my God, Mom, I'm so scared, though, because this happened. Mm-hmm. And then she, that was probably just in the back of her head. And she's like, oh, but that would be a great seance. Yeah, look at how much that would boost my credibility. Yeah. So, like, it was probably just something like that because, I mean, military people talk, especially to other military people. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, having two sons in the Navy that maybe heard this story from other Navy guys and then talked to their mom. Yeah, she easily could have gotten that information from them. Yeah, I agree with that. But they set up kind of a sting. They had a naval lieutenant as their undercover man and then the cops ready to raid at his signal. And here's how it went. <laughs> These are my some of my fever dreams clippings. On January 14th, Two naval officers, Lieutenants Worth and Fowler, went to the temple, where in a corner of the room, curtained off to make a cabinet, Mrs. Duncan appeared to go into a trance. The only light when the performance began was a red one. No sooner had the curtain been closed than a voice spoke from the cabinet. A white form, 
A rather traditional kind of ghost, said Mr. Maud, appeared, and Mrs. Homer said that that was Albert, the medium's guide. Mr. Worth asked the spirit, which Albert said was in him, Are you my aunt? And a husky voice replied, Yes. That, said Mr. Maud, that would be the prosecutor here uh, in the mental case, was unfortunate because all of Mr. Worth's aunts are alive. That he knows of. Then Peggy came out and sang a song. Then a parrot called Bronco was shown to the audience. And I have in my notes, ghost parrot? No. It was supposedly had the spirit of Mrs. Homer, one of uh, Duncan's co-conspirators, well, Mrs. Homer's grandmother, in it. But Granny didn't feel like coming out that day. Okay. Yeah, okay. So it's a possessed parrot and not a ghost parrot. The distinction is not important. (laughs) (laughs) Then a policeman materialized, and he seemed to be the father of one of the attendees. And he said, wait until I put on my hat. And then here, here comes the real bonkers fever dream stuff. But I'm, I'm still not certain that I didn't hallucinate this. But here we go. <sighs> Lieutenant Stanley Raymond Worth and Mrs. Homer told him that Mrs. Duncan had an operation, and inside her body were found cigarette ends, matchsticks, and all sorts of rubbish off the floor. Lieutenant Worth said that one figure leaned over and shook hands with a man in the second row and in a Yorkshire accent said, How are you, Jarvis? The spirit form, added Lieutenant Worth, said that he did not think much of the medium because she was too fat. There was then a muttered conversation between the two as though they were having a private joke and I distinctly caught the words, and it's B and then a line because it's censored, twister. So bitch twister, bastard twister, any other bad words we can think of that start with B? That would make this make sense. hole twister. Oh, God. <laughs> so. Booby. <laughs> booby twister. Peggy, after singing a song, said, I'm gone do no. I'm going down now, I guess. Uh, when the spirit of a dead cat appeared, it meowed, and the parrot said, Pretty Polly. Lieutenant Worth, referring to another seance which he had attended with Constable Cross, said that when a white shrouded form stood between the curtains, Cross gripped it. I produced a torch and saw Mrs. Duncan trying to get rid of a piece of white material. There were two or three yards of it. Someone knocked down my torch, a flashlight, and I saw the cloth fall to the floor. Someone then pulled it into the audience. Mrs. Duncan was standing in her bare feet trying to put on her shoes. She started yelling and screaming that she was ill and wanted a doctor. Everyone jumped up and there was pandemonium. I told everyone to keep still and blew my whistle, my police whistle. That was the signal for a police inspector to come in. So they basically kind of exposed her trying to do some sort of chicanery behind a a white sheet. And so then the raid started. Well, there was also rules, though. At the shows, you were not allowed to use lights or flash photography because then the ectoplasm could injure her. It it would cause it to shrink back into her too fast and and cause wounds or death. So, like, there were rules that you could not have lights. Yes, in case anyone became nervous and accidentally flashed it on. Like, okay, a little flimsy, but Mm -hmm. okay. Sure. So a police officer, leaping from behind her, grabbed the ectoplasm which had come out from Mrs. Duncan and called out, I have got it meaning that he had got the form which he thought was Mrs. Duncan. A torch was flashed on as the curtain was drawn back, and the spirit form was slowly receding. Mrs. Duncan called, Get me a doctor! I am a dying woman! 
She gets dramatic sometimes. That's okay. Well, she's a medium. They, you need to have drama. Drama. And, and apparently possessed parrots and ghost cats. Yes, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. I have been so stressed and overworked lately. It feels like I have so little time to decompress. So when you do decompress, how do you do it? You know how I do it. Best Fiends! Best Fiends is the super fun match three puzzle game that never gets old. You're always collecting new characters. Playing new events and challenges. Kicking your co-host's butt. (laughs) I guess it's level check time. Indeed it is, and I've been excited for this all week because I got past level 5,000. Whoa! I am at level 5,038. Wow. I am at level 2,662. You're about halfway there. I'm I'm (laughs) gonna never catch you. You're gaining, you're gaining, (laughs) keep it up. So download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. She is arrested, charged with the following. Causing money to be paid by false pretenses. Creating a public mischief. And most importantly, conspiring to contravene Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act of 1735 and pretending, contrary to the same act, to exercise conjuration. So I'm going to read you an abridged version, my abridged version, of the Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act because the whole section is one 250-word sentence. I actually copied and pasted it and did a workout. <laughs> I I'm expect not, nothing less. I'm not just guessing here. If any person shall pretend to exercise or use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantment, or conjuration, every person so offending shall, for every such offense, suffer imprisonment by the space of one whole year without bail, And once in every quarter of the said year, upon the market day, there stand openly upon the pillory by the space of one hour. So one year in jail per offense and one hour in the pillory on market day per quarter and also additionally a fine as the judge saw fit. And for however long the judge saw fit as well. And uh, I did have to cut the best phrase from the whole thing as it wasn't really relevant from his or her skill or knowledge in any occult or crafty science. Crafty science, I guys. Like crafty science might be the episode subtitle. This was the first time the Witchcraft Act was used in over a hundred years. Thankfully, though, they did not burn her at the stake. Yeah, at least they'd gone past that. <laughs> at least they were like, well, I think we need to put those tapes behind us. Her agent, Francis Brown, and the Homers who had hosted the seance were arrested with her and accused of conspiring with Duncan to defraud. The trial lasted seven days and was held at the Old Bailey in London. And we have some tidbits from here. As you said, uh, we had the undressing. Mrs. Jane Mary Rust said that she undressed and searched Mrs. Duncan prior to the seance, and then two other women helped her into her seance clothes. Now, Mrs. Rust had attended other seances with Duncan, She said at one point her husband had appeared. She told him to come out from behind the curtain, and he did. She went up to him and said, Kiss me, dear. He told her to take his hand, and he clasped it tightly. She said his hand was cold, and she felt the knobbly knuckles from his rheumatism. Then, 
My husband kissed me right on the mouth. The defense asked if she recognized her husband, and she said yes. It was my husband. I was right close to him. He spoke to me. I recognized his voice. I was perfectly certain of it. He said he was always with me, and he would be on the other side waiting for me. I have never been more certain of anything in my life than that it was my husband. I just, uh, yeah, I wonder if it was somebody else's husband. Could have been somebody else's husband. Yep, yep, when you kiss her, so. And there's more testimony about seances and her results. This is from a newspaper report. Charles Robert Burrell, a dockyard worker and spiritualist medium, told of a visit to the Master Temple with a Mr. and Mrs. Locke, at which they inquired about an airman named Fred. On November 17th, he said, we were told that he had passed over. On the 18th, we were told that he was alive and being cared for by patriots in Holland. Later, however, they found that he had passed over. A form of someone dressed up like a fairy in a pantomime was seen. At the close of the seance, Mrs. Duncan fell forward into Mr. Homer's arms. I don't know what the fairy has to do with anything. And the fever dream continues. Then we have Mrs. Bessie Locke stated that a figure said that it was her mother, but the voice was nothing like her mother's. Her husband, William Locke, gave evidence that the figure said she was Sally, his sister. He said, come out if it is you and shake my hand and I'll believe you. It was a fat, clammy hand and the figure was more like that of Mrs. Duncan than anybody else. Hmm. Man, she gets, she gets called fat like a lot. It makes, it makes me feel bad for her. You know, I, I swear, though, in, in her family's thing, I saw something about uh, about it. So they were basically like, no, she was fat. But the reason she was fat is because these seances would take a lot out of her and she would need to eat a lot right after to to get her energies back. And so because of this, she was quite heavy. Okay. All right. So an explanation. Yeah, some sort of explanation. But the family was basically like, yeah, she was, she was a pretty big lady. <laughs> But she had to eat a lot to get the energy to continue doing her good work. I wonder if they can hear you rolling your eyes. <laughs> I feel like they should be able to. Yeah. yeah. Then there's some discussion of the fee and payment structure here. Once again, we have more of my attempts to get modern valuations and figure out everything. Stupid shillings. Yeah. Big, huge caveat about these numbers, but... It was the Homer's apartment that was the the psychic center where the seances were held. And they paid Duncan eight pounds per session. That's $450 today. There had been 13 of those over the course of six days during this particular stint in Portsmouth. So that's $5,850 in today's U.S. currency. So then, from what I can understand, the homers take the proceeds from the door. Uh, For example, at a recent seance, there had been 18 paid seats for 12 shillings and six pennies each, which I think is about a pound 50, pound and a half. That's $27 per seance. And so multiply that times 13 seances, and we get, uh, in today's money, $19,890. It also is weird to me that these seances are almost like a subscription order from Amazon. Like, you you have to keep getting it. I don't understand. I feel like I would do it once. 
But I don't, why would you go 13 times? Oh, I don't know. It's necessarily people going 13 times. Oh, okay. It's it's different audiences filling the seat. Oh, you know? okay. Like there's a, there's a matinee and then there's an evening show. And so that's just how much they're making across 13 shows then. Yeah. Okay. You might have some people who are repeats and you're likely to. I mean, that one dude went to 18. I mean, he was high up in the spiritualist world, but still. Yeah. So yeah, yeah you, you ha- might have different people. You might have some people who are going to go every time just if they didn't get in touch with their loved one during the first session, then they might come in the second, third. Okay. Yeah, fourth. that makes sense. Because if yeah. there's 18 people, I'm sure she's not doing all of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and those were the 18 paid seats. There's also three unpaid seats, which I imagine is probably Francis Brown and the Homers. Yeah. So, And the Homers made sure to say that over 30 pounds of the proceeds had gone to charity. That's $1,700, which is less than 10% of the proceeds. But I guess most of us don't pay more than 10% of our income into charity, so I can't... Well, I mean, and they still have six children that they need to Well, that's the homers. I don't know how many children they have. The the Duncans, I don't know if they sent anything to charity. But they were making far less than the homers were making. So in today's money, the the Duncans are making about, let's say, round up to $6,000. And the homers are making, uh, for the exact same thing, they're making almost $20,000. So they're making a killing... Yes, And absolutely. not doing hardly any of the work. Exactly, yeah. Just set up some chairs and uh, maybe mix some paper and egg whites. Yeah. <laughs> and then they mentioned that the flashlights were generally confiscated at the door, like we said. A wing commander, George Mackey, said that he's not a spiritualist and, in fact, used to be an investigator but he talks about seeing his mother, who died in 1927, at one of the seances. She materialized, and he said, Our faces were about three to four feet apart. We had an intimate conversation about home affairs and domestic matters. So she's like, George, pick up your damn socks. How's your sister? <laughs> you taking care of her? You looking out for your sister? I don't know why she's from Jersey all of a sudden. Because why not? It's easier to do than a Scottish accent. (laughs) Yeah, 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 for sure. And for all the shit show that this trial is, it could have been worse because her defense counsel wanted her to be allowed to give a demonstration of her powers to the jury. And that was refused kind of in her own protection because the, the court in general said... If she tries to give him a demonstration and for whatever reason nothing happens, that automatically damns her in the eyes of the jury. But also at the same time, yeah, shouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, under at least under the Witchcraft Act. But So she is found guilty and sentenced to nine months in prison without any right to appeal. And when the sentence was passed, she said, Oh, I have done nothing. Oh, God. Is there a God? Maybe not the best sentence to come out of a spiritualist. Just going to throw that out there. I would agree with that. They were actually in the papers, though, at the time. The trial was that of the Blitz Witch. Oh, I didn't see that. Which I enjoy. (laughs) I like that, yes. As for her conspirators, her agent, Francis Brown, was in prison for four months. And the homers were bound over for two years. So that's not imprisoned. I had to do a, a little digging into some terminology here. Bound over has a... A particular meaning in American law, and it doesn't appear to, that it's the same under British law. In British law, it places someone under legal obligation, such as to keep the peace or not defraud people with supernatural claptraps, you know, stuff like that in general. 
Gotcha. Just, you know, a blanket thing. Don't do this. So um, I have from Medium Debbie Wojciechowski's website. She claims that Winston Churchill, who clearly had nothing better to do in 1944, dropped by the prison and told her he would make amends. That I don't think happened. He did write a memo. He did write a memo, yes. Yes. He wrote a memo to the Home Secretary. It was really just like two lines. It was actually one sentence. He was he was more pissed off at the waste of resources and kind of at the, the, the silliness of it. He said in the memo, what was the cost of this trial to the state, observing that witnesses were brought from Portsmouth and maintained here in this crowded London for a fortnight, and the recorder kept busy with all this obsolete tomfoolery to the detriment of necessary work in the courts. And I would like to claim obsolete tomfoolery as my uh, new band name. I love it. The title of my sex tape and the title of my forthcoming memoir. I love that it's the title of your sex tape as yeah. well. Obsolete, obsolete tomfoolery. tomfoolery. And I'm all in on obsolete tomfoolery. I, uh, I might start a clothing line. Uh, maybe uh, create a fragrance. Everything. Everything is obsolete tomfoolery, except for the Star- episode title, because that would be obvious. Yeah. Start a pub. Start a pub called obsolete tomfoolery. Oh, yes. I love it. You now have a new life goal. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Yeah, but he was basically saying, like, this is really dumb, guys. You're wasting all these resources to call somebody a witch. Are you kidding me? Yes, yes. That's exactly his his point wasn't more that he was in favor of her. It was more that he was against the just absolute waste that was going on, time, money, attention, you know, but people were really it, it was really fascinating to the public. So I think they almost had an obligation. They were like, well, at least it's distracting us from the war. But you know what? She was actually really popular in jail because yeah. she would have cell seances. Yes. Yes, I did love that. Her fellow inmates did seem to enjoy those. Okay. So I have a quick story from when she was in jail. Oh, okay. Great. It says that when, when she went to jail, at this point, she was a very sick woman. She was very overweight. She had diabetes. And because of the conditions at Holloway, the prison, conditions were pretty grim. They were food poor. And they didn't think she was going to survive. But not only did she survive, but her health actually improved during her time in jail. There was an incident while she was locked away. A, quote, doodle bug. I don't know hit the prison, and set light to it. So somebody came in and lit the prison on fire while she was there. So maybe a firebug, like an arsonist. Or a douchebag. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the British thing. Oh. I feel like doodlebug is some sort of like nice British insult. Let's start calling people that. Doodlebug. Harry Price is such a doodlebug. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but uh, Helen's cell was actually filled with smoke. Oh, like, that's how close she was to being seriously injured in this. But somebody came and unlocked her and got her out of her cell just in time. So she, so she was okay. Did this fire kill anybody that it said? It didn't say. I don't know. Okay. I should have chased down the doodle bug rabbit hole, but I did not. <laughs> the doodle bug rabbit hole. The doodle bug rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so my, my memoir is now titled Obsolete Tomfoolery, colon, The Doodle Bug Rabbit Hole. <laughs> it's just... It's, Sounds like I'm having a stroke. (laughs) It it does. We might be having strokes. (laughs) And so she was imprisoned until September 1944. And then she went back to daily life. 
It seems like she kept up with the seances and the authorities were still keeping an eye on her. They busted up one of her seances in 1956, but they couldn't use the Witchcraft Act against her because it had been repealed in 1951, pretty much as a response to all of this, and replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which itself was repealed in 2008. And in the 1950s, Parliament also gave spiritualism as a religion its stamp of, not approval, but recognition. They were like, hey, spiritualism, we see you, and you're a thing. We recognize that you exist, and people believe in you, and that's okay. And of course, that was pushed by a spiritualist member of Parliament. The government wasn't able to make anything out of her seance and their raid on it. And, uh, but I have this again from medium uh, Debbie Wojciechowski. This is her version of what happened at the raid. When the police officer physically grabbed her during the raid, the ectoplasm withdrew quickly into her body, leaving second-degree burns across her stomach. Mrs. Duncan passed away five weeks later due to the physical damage to her body. Touching somebody when they're doing a seance is actually considered the worst possible sin of of a medium like it's the worst thing you could physically do to a medium in a trance because it can cause immense or fatal damage apparently helen was covered in two second degree burns the size of saucers on her stomach and breast she was in severe pain and she actually went into shock these burns never healed And she did pass away five weeks after on December 6th, 1956, according to her family. So she's actually considered a martyr among mediums Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because she had passed away because somebody touched her while she was in a trance. It feels like the, oh, I'm going to go into a trance and produce things from my body, but you can't touch me because that'll kill me. It feels a touch convenient. Uh, she also had, in addition to all the health problems you mentioned, she'd had ongoing heart issues as well. Yeah. I, I do look askance at the whole, oh, it burned her because the police touched her. Because that only increases the martyrdom. And and every figure wants and needs a martyr. And having such a recent one in the spiritualist movement, which had waxed and waned over, I mean, it started in the 1800s and then kind of had a, a little You know, popularity declined a little bit when it wasn't such a hot thing, but it still had its adherence. And then it came back again some, I believe in World War I, was kind of a big boom. Because again, you have many people dying. And so you have people gaining an interest in contacting the spirit world, contacting people who have passed. And so, yeah, it it tends to boom in in wartime periods like that or periods of great death. And because, you know... Superstition is one of the things that can help us get through things, and and that's okay. I don't look askance at anybody who wants to believe in whatever the hell they want to believe in. Yeah, I mean, even you and I have gone to see psychics and stuff just to see. Yeah, I've I've had my palm read multiple times. (laughs) Yeah, how how those twins coming? I mean, maybe I'll get twin ducks or twin cats at some point in time. Yes. Yeah, I was supposed to have twins, and um, they're invisible. (laughs) <laughs> the uh, first palm reader also told my baby sister uh, that she was going to be a famous writer. 
And I'm just sitting here like, hello. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they got you guys flipped. What am I, chopped liver? So, and that also inspired my little sister whose um, field trip I was a chaperone on to spend the entire bus ride home from New York City uh, writing. But when she writes, uh, she's, she has uh, Down syndrome. When she writes, she, she has to say it out loud. And I was trying to study for a psych test. Guess who failed that psych test? Probably should have studied the correct chapter, though. That would have helped. <laughs> that yeah. might have helped a little bit. I skated by that class. So, uh, but yes, we, we've gone to see people. It's just kind of like a fun thing. I know, I, like, there's a 99.9% chance that I'm just, in, I'm investing my money in entertainment. Yes. It's the same thing. I go to the movies and I spend 15 bucks on that or whatever. And... I'm not sitting there believing in everything that's happening on the screen. Yeah. It's not like I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I really am in Dune, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's investing in entertainment to me. And if somebody can make a living doing that, as, as long as they don't believe their own hype too much, I'm fine with that. So, but yeah, they have yet to tell me anything that's actually come true. So, well, I know, I know that um, Helen Duncan's family is actually still doing a petition to get her posthumously pardoned. Yes, they've tried this multiple times. They have, and they're also also trying to get the street named after her because they think that that would be lovely. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they tried in two thousand one, two thousand eight, and twenty twelve. They had petitions to the Scottish Parliament. And those were rejected. And uh, there was uh, a bronze bust of her made by a spiritualist fellowship in 1997. That was given to the town of Calendar, where she was born. The town did try to display it, but people who were particularly religious got kind of upset about it. So it's now at the Sterling Smith Art Gallery and Museum. And so, yeah, that is... uh, that is Helen Duncan, but wait. You know what we didn't have in this episode that took place in Britain? British pubs. That is right. I decided to go for uh, a double whammy of British pubs this week. Yeah, well, in triple whammy right here because I decided to go to each town that we had uh, spent a little time in. Okay. So Calendar is a little tough because it only has two pubs, not with terribly interesting names. I really want one to be Pot Pie. Yeah, yes. But there is a hotel called the Roman Camp Hotel, and camp is the word for it. it the outside is painted entirely pale pink. It's oh. wonderful. It somehow manages to be pale pink in this British landscape, well, Scottish, yeah, okay, Scottish, whatever, and it's it's still very elegant. It has like these very verdant green hedges rising up to kind of provide a sort of contrast to the pink and a little more seriousness to it. And there's also a resident peacock. Outstanding. Yeah, and there's a bar in the hotel, so that counts. Then in Dundee, we have Tickety Boos. Oh, which is B O O apostrophe S, but still. Tickety-boos. Tickety-boos. Church Dundee, where, uh, if you wish, you can go see Drag Bingo. Oh. I love uh, when Drag Bingo, when they pull out the uh, O69. (laughs) Everybody loves that. Everybody does. I don't care how old we get, I'm still going to giggle when Mm -hmm. somebody pulls O69. Absolutely. O69. We have uh, the Bank Bar. 
the old bank bar, the post office bar. <laughs> okay. I'm waiting for like the DMV bar. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people would fail the exam. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a bar just called George Orwell. Okay. And there's the Klep bar. Not the Clap, but still kind of an unfortunate choice in names, especially if you're drunk and not pronouncing things right. Uh, but uh, you do go to the Klep bar uh, after you spend some time at Nine Maidens. Uh-huh. <laughs> spend some time at Nine Maidens and then go to the Klep. Yeah. Okay. And also, I think we've talked about this before, but it was many, many episodes ago. And so I forgot and kind of rediscovered this. We have, you know, Dollar Tree and Dollar General and such here. They have Poundland. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would rather go to Poundland. I would go to Poundland any day of the week. I, I would prefer that so much more than Dollar General. Yes. Poundland. And then don't mind if I do. Finally, in Portsmouth, I skipped over all the water and naval themed bars, bar names at least. Uh, because we have the Hole in the Wall, which is an excellent name. Good Companion. Feels friendly. Okay. And then one just called the British Queen, which my theory is that is in case you get so hammered that you don't know what country you're in and whether it's got a monarch. But no, they had the naval, uh, the naval British Queen section that they had to be over six feet tall to carry the... The coffin of the royals, right? The Queen's Company, yes. Oh, the Queen's Company. So maybe that, or maybe it's a ship. Maybe, yeah, because that was the Grenadiers, and I don't know. I, I'm, I, I feel think... like they really missed the boat <laughs> on naming something like Happy Seaman. <laughs> uh, most of it was, there, were, uh, there was at least one bar called The Dolphin. And I was like, eh. So. What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? That was lovely. So, that has been Helen Duncan and multiple British pubs. Sorry, I get one in. I get one. Okay, you're done. You're, I get one in. I'm done. Yes, yes. And I, I, even, I even spelled it that way. <laughs> you, you sure did. So... And so, yeah, and that has been, aside from uh, our, our next uh, bonus episode, well, not next next, but our next Tuesday tiny bonus episode, because Amber accidentally did a tiny for this week when it was my week. Gosh, fucked up. Her life is hectic, so she's all ready for next week. You fucked up in the best possible way. <laughs> I, I, I fuck up and over-prepare. That is what I do. <laughs> yes, so that'll be a spooky one, but next week we're going back to uh, normal old-timey crimes with the occasional spooky stuff thrown in where it pops up which it tends to because old stuff is ghosty stuff so yes so yes uh we hope you have enjoyed spooky ween and, and puking up some spirits yeah 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 and uh, this nice bookend of, of witches where we started with a witch and we ended with a witch well yeah and actually you know i saw a few different places that called helen duncan the last Witch. Yes, indeed. She was the last uh, witch to be tried under that law. And then laws after that tended to be more like fraud-centered. Yeah. So, But uh, it, the, it was specifically the Witchcraft Act, whereas the next one was fraudulent mediums. Yes, but it was, it was very apropos that we ended on Scotland's last witch. Exactly, yes. So uh, I'm curious. Just want to do a little post-mortem on Spooky Ween. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I'm just curious, what was your favorite thing that we did this month? Spooky thing, whether it was here or in the bonus episodes. Hmm. 
So they're all fun. That's the thing. Because mm-hmm. everything we do is is pretty fun. But I'm going to have to say that my favorite was our international spooky stories. Yes. There were some very fun surprises in there. And I and I liked getting to, like, tackle Norway because uh, I am Norwegian. Uh, my grandfather was first generation off the boat. So, like, that felt really right to me. So I'm going to go with that. What was yours? Uh, Werewolf Week. Oh, that was fun, too. Because of, of your hysterical uh, <laughs> indecent headdress suggestion, which, by the way, you know, Jackson and I listen to every episode for, you know, quality tests, and he just likes hearing it. And uh, so we got to the point where I, I mentioned the indecent headdresses, and I said, what could you possibly put on a headdress to make it indecent? And he goes, penises. And I was just like, wait. <laughs> You preempted me. I'm going to say that in just a second on the show. Yes. And then he was in hysterics at your whole thing. And then that was before we even got to tossing the devil salad. <laughs> and he was, he was like that. Was, he, he really enjoyed that. And I, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that episode too. And I couldn't wait to, to put it up and, and have people hear it. No, yeah, that, that, I, okay, that was really fun too. But I kind of just went off the rails. I don't even remember the things that spewed from my mouth. <laughs> they were very funny because I was just the mental images that I had in my head was like, let me fuck on this and climb under here. <laughs> like I just I I'm broken still from that episode. <laughs> I, I also I really enjoyed uh, being able to sort of deadpan it up. When I was talking about, you know, I just launch into the devil's member, a cubit in length, that's 17.49 inches. And just being able to, I love being able to, to deliver material to you in, in a dry form, if possible, because I know that that will just launch you further into the out there bonkers fun time territory. <laughs> On the 18 inch corkscrew penis. Oh my God. Right. A yard when extended. Oh. <laughs> memory all right all right <laughs> yes yes so uh and uh any any thoughts on what we might tackle next year or uh not satan because he'll destroy us <laughs> yes he will we'll both die of hysteria <laughs> i was thinking of us dying with the the, the a yard went erect <laughs> i went mr hands <laughs> oh god <laughs> We're on very different pages here. <laughs> yes, we are. Very different pages. Um, I don't. I think it's going to have to be a surprise. I think it is. Yeah, I'll. I'll definitely e- even bring, to us. Yeah, even to us. I'll definitely bring some more haunted pubs in. Although that'll likely be over on the Patreon. So, uh, but you know, we'll definitely do lots of haunted places, some supernatural creatures. I know I have on the list uh, a, a spiritualism story or two that we can tell about the the interesting things that happened in that movement. And yeah, so we're going to have lots of fun. We'll keep it spooky for you guys. Don't worry. We put the spooky in spooky ween. We do. (laughs) So, all right. Well, now for all the bullshit. As always, there's the Patreon that we mentioned at the top of the show. If you don't feel like doing that, you can just leave a buck on the nightstand uh, you can send us uh, it by PayPal with our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Just leave a buck on the nightstand and then go do your walk of shame. <laughs> and we also have an Amazon wish list with books. So if you want to choose something on there, we could do a case based on that. We're also always open to suggestions. We can't guarantee that it'll happen because it depends on what material is available. But most things that are out there, if you want to hear us do a case on something, let us know, and you can do that in our email or on our social media. 
Uh, we are Old Timey Crimey on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Even if you've got like a cool case in your past where your great grandma was a freak, let us know. We'll look into it. Please, please tell us about your freaky great grandmother. We want to know. <laughs> we want to know. Yes. So you can come visit us over there, or you can just say hi, or you can come and see media related to the case. I know I need to get back on the social media, and I'm probably going to do that after we finish here, but I, there's not a whole lot of stuff on Jean Grenier from the, the werewolf case, so I just collected a whole bunch of true crime memes, <laughs> and I'm just going to put that stuff up. So if you ever find any funny true crime memes, you can always come over to our page and drop them there too. It doesn't have to be old-timey. You know, we all love the the, the true crime stuff, so... Or historical memes as well, because that fits the bill, too. We like crime. We like history. We love memes. Yes, we do. Let's just be real. Yeah. That was that was a lot of fun collecting true crime memes. I was like, I like that one, and I like that one, and I like that one. So, yeah. So, yeah, there's all of that. If you want to hear more of my adulcet tones and starting sentences with, yeah, and as I am wanted to do, you can come over to Short Story Short Podcast where I and uh, our friend Chris Garcia talk about short stories. And we've done some spooky ones this month. We did a Stephen King one. We did a Daphne du Maurier one. And then we just we just hit up this one that was so out there. It was beautiful and wonderful and weird. It was an interview with an author, but it's an actual, it's a story presented as an interview. And it gets so kind of trippy. <laughs> So that was a lot of fun because both of our brains were a little bit broken and we were no longer sure uh, who or what to trust by the time we finished that. So yes, and if I have any more bullshit, uh, I can't remember. So uh, Amber, what you doing this week? Um, I, I don't know. I'm working a lot. Uh, I'm going to build a giant fort in my living room because I want to. Nice. So I've just decided that like with I have three couches and I feel like I could make that a really cool fort. So that is that's what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to order pizza and make a fort and hide tonight. I love it. I love it. That sounds so fun. Uh, I I am not going to be making a fort and hiding tonight. I have a call with my family. Ooh, you should make a fort and hide tonight. I should, shouldn't I? Um, we're all. No, I love my family. We're all very. We're distant. But from then each you other. could be the only one in the fort. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Especially if it's a video call, Christy. Where are you? In the fort. I'm in the fort. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna do that and and chit chat and catch up with my uh, my siblings and my parents and my dad's uh, recovering from being ill. Thankfully, not with COVID. So we're gonna do that and. Uh, I think Jackson and I might make a run to Altoona sometime this week and maybe, um, you know, we haven't gone in forever, hit up, you know, like Target and Kohl's and whatnot and maybe grab a bite to eat. We'll see. You should probably have car sex too. When's the last time you did that? Oh, it's been a really long time. Right. Have you seen Jackson's car? <laughs> maybe you should take your car. Maybe. <laughs> More room for uh, carrying things and having car sex. Yes. Yes. <laughs> carrying lots of things. So, so yeah, and uh, nothing super exciting. I, I know I need to I do some more writing. I submitted my story to Chris for his uh, his zine, Five Crimes, and he really liked it. It was uh, five food-based crimes, and I did... Uh, I should have sent him some food-based porn. <laughs> and I bet you have a collection. Well, no, I, I do write uh, smut on occasion. So oh, so you have some just ready and waiting. I could... Pull something freaky out of my head in like 15 minutes. There you go. 
Yeah, mine was on, I did a story on Hardy Rodenstock, who uh, sold at, at auction wines that he had discovered that belonged to Thomas Jefferson. But no. Mm-mm. So, <laughs> so yeah. he sound, that sounds like a porn name. It Hardy does. Rodenstock. It kind of does. And that was a fake name, too. It was a, it, that was his porn name. His original name was, was Meinhard something. I can't remember what the, the last name was. No, I like his cockfighting name far better. Meinhard, though, is kind of... That's... That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, I did that. And I, I just need to... You know, I'm enjoying delving into the newspapers. Oh, and uh, we usually do our thank you, Chris Garcia, for newspapers.com. Friend of the show, Chris Garcia. Yes, when we're doing the uh, sources. But he upgraded the subscription to the basically all access. We have the power. Every She's looking at her spikes and she's just so amused. (laughs) I know. It's almost as big as my cock. (laughs) I'm buying a microphone cover. To protect it from you. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, we uh, it's now an all access. The, the publisher's extra. You know, we can get all the newspaper newspapers, which all the articles I used for this episode were under that heading. They were in the publisher's extra. They all had the little star next to them, and I was like, oh my god, thank god, because if I had looked them up. And we didn't have the publishers extra. I wouldn't have found jack shit. So Chris Garcia saved the day. He did. I mean, he 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 mainly got the publishers extra because he needed it for himself. That's but fine. He shares it with us, and so therefore we're happy. And I outstanding. Hope, I hope nobody at newspapers.com hears this and stops that from happening. <laughs> so because we need it very badly, very helpful. So yes, uh, so a thank you goes out to him for improving our resource materials and therefore our show. And that has been our show. Thank you for listening to our filthy words. And thank you for listening to, especially this month, our spooky words. And today it was definitely both spooky and filthy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it got it got a little weird. It, it did get a little weird. <laughs> there was some weird shit happening. So, yeah. And we will see you next week. Uh, have a fantastic weekend. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are The Scotsman. The HMS Barham Explosion and Sinking. The Wikipedia article on the HMS Barham. Ben Johnson on Historic UK. The Statues Project. Debbie Wojciechowski on Medium Debbie. Charlotte Charlotte Hodgman on History Extra Magazine. Laura Brown in Scots Magazine. And I just have ectoplasm. I don't even know what that is. There's links. Um, <laughs> and from newspapers.com, the Boston Globe, Evening Standard, The Guardian, uh, and several Corel in The Guardian. My sources this week are dailyrecord.co.uk by Anna Burnside, Scott's Magazine with Laura Brown, HelenDuncan.org, Explore the Archive by Team Mighty, and ClanDuncan.co.uk. You want to pause and let those stupid ducks run around for a little bit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Khaki just will not stop. <laughs> 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 <laughs>